how do you concisely define being anti-Semitic? Well, concisely is hard um, because very often the things that um, that anti-Semites hate, uh, they're you know projections of of themselves. They um, it's hard to uh, ascribe this to um, to Jews in particular. Hmm. But I think if if I had to boil it down to one thing, it is a kind of resentment. I haven't been able to read your book, uh, considering it's not published yet, but I have a lot of questions for you. And first, I just want to introduce who you are. You're a research fellow at the Independent Institute who are publishing this book, and the David Bernstein Professor of Political Science and Chair of the Center for Advanced Governmental Studies at John Hopkins University. So before we get into the contents of your book, I think that it would be really useful for people to understand a couple of basic things that I think are quite mysterious, despite the fact that they're so basic. And so the first question that I have for you is, what does it mean to be a Jew? Is it religious? Is it ethnic? Is it ancestral? Uh, is it political? What exactly does it mean to be a Jew? Well, it can mean different things to different people, but I think that for most Jews, it's um, uh, religious and ancestral. You know, the Jews are, I think, the last of the biblical tribes. Judaism was the religion of a particular tribe. Um, and there were, there were others like us, um, and maybe some, some still exist. The Yazidi might be an example. Um, but the Jews uh, are the, um, the descendants of a tribe that, that developed a particular set of religious beliefs, um, beliefs that influenced not only Judaism, but of course are the progenitors of, of Christianity or the Muslim religion. Um, and, uh, you know, many, um, many Jews over the millennia converted, became something else, um, but um, several million continue to regard themselves as Jews and, you know, usually to be regarded by, by others as Jews. So we are a tribal religion. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and one of the reasons I ask you this, and we can get into this maybe a little bit later, is because a lot of people tend to say Zionism and being a Jew is not the same thing. Of course, there are people who are anti-Zionist Jews, there yeah. are people who are atheist Jews. There, you know, there's there's so many things. Yeah, there. I mean, go ahead, but this is very well worth exploring. I'm I'm very impatient with this idea that there's a distinction, meaningful distinction, to be made between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. I hear this all the time, and I would say that uh, philosophically, sure, they can be different things. You can be. Uh, anti-Zionist without being anti-Semitic. You can be anti-Semitic without being anti-Zionist. Mm -hmm. We've seen this on the, um, on the radical right. Uh, but in reality, in the, in the real world of politics, or as the Germans used to say, anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism are one and the same. And the reason that is that in the real world of politics, 
First of all, if you're going to be anti-Zionist, you're going to be engaged in political struggles with Jews, uh, who are the you know the primary, not exclusive, but primary defenders of Zionism. And in the course of those struggles, it would be impossible not to become just a little bit anti-Semitic, right? Uh, if you're if you're constantly engaged in at least verbal altercations with with uh, Jews about Israel, uh, that's going to that's going to slide over. But second, um, most people in the United States who are vehemently anti-Zionist, vehemently anti-Israel, should ask themselves why. Um, surely Israel is is not. Um, you know, the kingdom of heaven, it is a all too human state. But if you had to rank order regimes on the basis of their cruelty, their cupidity, I don't think Israel would be anywhere near the top of the list. I personally am anti-North Korean. Um, I could be, you know, persuaded to be anti-Chinese, and I'm sure against all of the, against all of the Arab kingdoms of the Middle East. These are vicious regimes. So how come we don't see demonstrations against the North Koreans on the streets of America? So, you know, Americans who claim, well, I am anti-Zionist, not anti-Semitic, should really examine their beliefs. Why Israel? Why are you anti-Israel? Um, uh, I don't know if I had to rank order the hundred or so regimes in the world on the basis of how they treat people. I mean, Israel would not be anywhere near the worst. I, I could rattle off 15 or 20 that no one could argue with. Um, and that might include the uh, the Palestinian regime on the West Bank, uh, by the way. Uh, so um, I would say that there's something else driving this animus toward Israel. And um, I think, you know, examine your heart. Uh, I think that it part of that animus is driven by dislike of Jews. Um, so when I put those two things together, why Israel? Okay, it's not the kingdom of heaven, but it's by no means the worst. And then um, uh, what happens to you when you're engaged in conflict with Jews? I would add a third, a third element, um, and this helps to explain why, well, one of the reasons why anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism become progressive ideologies. Hmm. A lot of times when progressives are talking about Israel, particularly when they're talking about settler colonialism, imperialism, they're really talking about the United States. Yes. They are projecting onto Israel um, their dislike of the United States, their, their disdain for their own country, um, and, um, you know, I was reminded of this, uh, the other day when I was reading this really silly article in the New York Post, did you see this about woke kindergarten? Oh, no, but I Didn't, believe it. <laughs> okay. well, well, this, this, um, woman who says she's a graduate of, uh, Columbia Teachers College, and I believe that because Columbia Teachers College would produce this sort of thing. No offense. <laughs> um, the, um, this woman, uh, has offers a, a kindergarten curriculum for sale, um, 
where the students learn to be anti-racist, anti-imperialist, anti-Zionist, uh, anti all the things that good progressives are for. She charges a lot of money for this. I mean, she's not a nonprofit. Um, but on her website, you can Google this. On her website, she uh, denounces Zionism and pretty much denounces America. We hate Israel. We hate America. Um, so part of this this progressive hatred of Israel is pure projection onto Israel of the things they think are bad about the United States. So the poor little kids in woke kindergarten, they don't have a chance. Mm -hmm. They're going to learn bad things about the country they live in, about countries that aren't so bad. It's horrible. It is horrible. It is horrible. And, you know, it does make me fear for the future because there's a whole generation of people now. We're going to talk about university students, but this is going to, as you're saying, kindergarten. Um, so it's starting at a very, very early age, this kind of indoctrination. And in fact, when you were speaking about your third point, it reminded me of this book that I'm reading right now, which I would highly recommend to all of our listeners and to you as well, if you haven't read it. And it's called Lolita in Tehran. Oh, yeah. And okay. yeah, it, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. It's a memoir of an English literature professor who was living in and teaching in Tehran before the Islamic Revolution back in the late 70s. And what happened there, which I'm sure you know, uh, but for our listeners, for a little bit of context, was that the far left and the Islamists paired together to overthrow the Shah. And so she's describing, as she's teaching this English literature course, that her progressive students, her communist students, and the Islamist students have the same kinds of complaints about books like The Great Gatsby. They say it's immoral, it's decadent, uh, it's, you know, they decry American imperialism. They have the same kinds of, of qualms. And what you're saying here about Zionism being this kind of extension of American values in some way, this of Western values, I think that this could be perhaps at the core I, I think we're seeing. Right. I think this is this is certainly a, an important element, and you know this this goes back to the um, 1960s. Um, after its founding, Israel was this tiny little socialist state, and um, progressives admired it. They saw farmers on the kibbutz. You know, Bernie Sanders went to visit the kibbutz and liked it. Uh, all sorts of uh, left-wing politicians would visit the kibbutz and have their picture taken near a tractor. Uh, so that was all fine and dandy. But in the 67 war, Israel, um, you know, showed that it, it was a regional power and moreover entered the defense orbit of the United States. And this was Israel's original sin. Uh, the left saw it as an American satellite. Um, as a, an American military proxy in the Middle East. And, and that, that's what began uh, the anti-Zionist crusade. Uh, it wasn't Israel's um, attitude toward the Arabs, nothing like that. It was that Israel became an American ally, became a military um, 
uh, they're part of the American military uh, alliance system, and that was its great sin. Instead of being farmers in their tractors, it was reservists in their tanks, and progressive could, progressives could not tolerate that. It was a betrayal. That makes so much sense. And in fact, I was just speaking with my husband before this, and we were you know, discussing questions that, that I could bring up with you. And he said, I really want to know, like, is it possible that you can be a socialist and be a Jew? And he was talking about the first prime minister of Israel and that whole story. So can you, can you go a little bit more into those details? Or the, um, the early leadership of Israel consisted of uh, European socialists. Um, some uh, who had been born in in, Pal- in British Mandate Palestine, others who came uh, from uh, Eastern Europe uh, before and and after World War II. Uh, many of these individuals were socialist in their leanings, and you know you may re- you may know that um, initially. The Soviet Union was a great supporter of the creation of Israel um, because they feared, you know, these people are our fellow socialists, so they'll listen mm-hmm. to us. And uh, moreover, this will upset the Arabs and, you know, muddy the politics of oil. Um, so from the, the Soviet Union, Union was the first country in the United Nations to vote uh, in favor of the creation of Israel. Um, but uh, things changed. Um, succeeding generations of Israelis weren't so sure they want to be socialists. Um, they became more individualistic. The kibbutz, a collective farm, they still remained part of their idealistic heritage, just as we claim to celebrate some traditions of the Wild West. But in reality, Israel became uh, a country whose economic base was trade and manufacturing. Uh, new immigrants came, particularly immigrants from North Africa, from uh, various Arab countries. They weren't socialists. They wanted opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Israel's politics changed. And by the way, you know the struggle underway in Israel today is still uh, an echo of that of that early struggle. Um, Netanyahu represents the the newer Israel, even though his family was part of, of the old Israeli elite. Um, Netanyahu's foes, including those on the Israeli Supreme Court, um, you know, represent the older Israel and uh, want to um, uh, maintain their own power. And much much of the struggle over the power of the Israeli Supreme Court has to do with this. Uh, I always tell people in a parliamentary democracy, judicial review is unheard of. That's a sort of American craziness because we're a presidential regime. Canada doesn't really have judicial review. Parliament can overturn uh, court opinion. So, but anyway, that that's getting off track here. That's another story. Mm. Uh, but. Um, you know, Israel began its life as a as a little socialist state. It got its first weapons from uh, Czechoslovakia, which was transferring leftover Soviet weapons from World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, but the country changed. It became more bourgeois, more more cosmopolitan. 
uh, more oriented toward Western markets. Um, and 67 was a great uh, turning point when uh, the United States saw that Israel was, would be a very useful proxy in the Middle East and began to arm it and support it. Um, you know, this idea that, that America gives Israel charity, you know, is not exactly right. The United States has always seen um, an interest in Israel. Uh, I remember a, a former fr a friend of mine named John Mearsheimer wrote a book on the Israel lobby uh, claiming that, that there's lobbying by Jews that brought about American support for Israel. I said, well, actually, American support for Israel is the result of a three-letter word, but it's not Jew, it's oil. Um, <laughs> Israel was seen as, um, as a very useful ally in struggles over control of, of the Middle East. But this, this is what the left absolutely totally presents. The, the, this was the great betrayal, the shift of Israel from being a nice, friendly socialist state on collective farms um, to being an American uh, military ally and a, a powerful military force in the Middle East. I wonder if that is linked with, you know, now we see Jewish progressives in the United States who are totally anti-Zionist, uh, like Norman Finkelstein, Gabor Mate, uh, he's lives in Canada. I don't I, I think he still lives in Canada now, but um, do you think that that's part of it is that they still hold on to those old kind of values? What is yeah, it? That, yeah, that's certainly part of it. Um, left liberal progressives, whether Gentile or Jew, have see, you know, Israel as a, a, a state of betrayal. Uh, there is more to it. Um, I think, you know, particularly the, these vehement Jewish anti-Zionists, uh, two factors. One is that uh, they had to decide whether, you know, when the left turned against Israel, they had to decide, am I someone with good, of good standing on the left or am I a Jew? Some became Jews. I mean, I have several friends who were um, left liberals, but also very... Um, very committed to being Jews, and they chose to be Jews. Some of them became right wingers. Uh, they were just extremists. They just either extreme would do. Yeah. Uh, but um, so there's that. You know, if you, at the university, for example, you can't be a left liberal and be pro-Israel. It's not possible. People, people wouldn't accept that. Um, uh, so many decided that they preferred being left liberals if they had to choose. But, you know, there's another element here. I hate to say it because it's a charge that's made so many times, but there is an element of, of what is traditionally called Jewish self-hatred. Um, there have always been Jews who, who just didn't want to be. They wanted to be, uh, they wanted to disappear into um, the larger society. Now, in America, that's easy enough to do. Change your name. And, you know, there are these signs everywhere that say the, the Episcopal Church wants you. Well, it does. It needs members. Uh, <laughs> only the Evangelical Protestant churches have any members. The other churches are, are dying away. Um, so it's easy enough to, to shed your Jewishness in America, and many do that. Um, 
but there is a there is a group that wants to do more than that. They're they're very resentful of having been Jews. They hate being Jews, and they want to demonstrate um, just how much they reject their Judaism. And they become, you know, the German phrase is Papst, more holy than the Pope. Mm -hmm. Uh, Annunciation of Israel. You mentioned Finkelstein. There are others as well. Uh, These people play a role in in the politics of anti-Semitism. They're brought uh, to bless the occasion uh, in a kind of ritual. They begin by saying, well, I am a Jew. Or in Finkelstein's case, my parents were all Holocaust survivors, and I bet they're proud of him. Um, mm-hmm. And by, by doing that, they're they're saying I can be very objective. And when I tell you that Zionism is evil, you can believe me. So that that's their function in the little play. Um, yeah. And you see that, you see that that's how people are using their voices, right? Like uh, anybody who is kind of grasping at straws, trying to find any excuse to say, I see this a lot on Twitter. I'm not, you know, anti-Semitic. I'm just anti-Zionist. And look, and they'll pull these examples, right, from from these figures and use it to fuel their own uh, sentiments, to back oh, them up. That's exactly right. The, these figures provide... Um ammunition um, for the left would people on the left can say it I'm not look at this these people are Jews and they say exactly what I say so um, you know there are several well-known groups that um, that play this role on the anti-semitic left and that would include Jewish voice for peace if not now um, open Hillel I mean there are small groups but they're very loud. And uh, they help legitimize what otherwise might be seen as anti-Semitism. So, uh, you know, I I find them purely evil. That's just my personal view. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Finkelstein can say his parents were Holocaust survivors. I can say I'm a Holocaust survivor. I was born in a DP camp uh, in Germany. So um, I, I think I know... I have some appreciation for America that they don't have, uh, and I have appreciation for Israel that they don't seem to have. So there, I'm going to bless my pro-Zionism. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You know, um, I'm sorry to hear that, and I, and I've heard so many stories like like yours, and I, I've spoken with so many people now, and I'm really trying to educate myself more and more about all of this because. It was something that was just kind of on the periphery of my radar. Um, And then, you know, it just kind of hit me in the face. And so I'm trying to learn as much as possible. But I'll give you an example from just when I was growing up, just in a little suburb of Montreal. Um, I, I don't know if I knew any Jews because I didn't really, if I did, I didn't think that they were different. But I remember that I had some friends or acquaintances or people that I went to school with and I was a teenager and they would start to use this slur uh, they would say oh you're just a Jew as a slur and and I remember then being really incensed and thinking what are you what are you guys even talking about what what are you talking about it didn't make sense to me and I always pushed back against that. And I always felt that it was wrong and I didn't know why people did it. So this is kind of how I want to segue into 
Um, my next question, again, before we go further into the contents of your book, to pull back even further historically and talk about, and maybe you touch on this in your book as well, why is it that the Jews have always been persecuted? Why have they always been the scapegoats of society? And, and how far can you trace it back to? Well, you know, Jews aren't always persecuted. Um, they're not always scapegoats. Um, in many times and places, Jews have, have been accepted and done extremely well. Um, it, it is, however, the case that um, sooner or later, in most places, Jews find themselves um, under attack. Why is it? Well, um, you know, you mentioned um, your childhood. I see kind of ethnic and racial prejudice as the norm in most societies. I grew up in the great city of Chicago, which was ethnically diverse, and we all made fun of one another. Um, I didn't know you weren't supposed to. None of us knew you weren't supposed to. Um, it was it was the it was the normal state of affairs, um, and you know that kind of of ethnic rivalry uh, is, is certainly common in most places. Look at Canada. I mean, where it's been a, a huge factor in Canadian history, um, but um, Jews are a group that has always remained slightly on the outside. Um, you know, in America, most ethnic groups have melted into American society. Uh, the Irish, the Italians, uh, the Poles. I once asked in, in class, um, it was a large lecture class, I said, how many of you can speak or understand the language of your grandparents or great-grandparents if they were immigrants. One kid raised his hand. I said, okay. I said, uh, what's the language? He said, Polish. So I, I said to him in Polish, how are you? And he looked blank. He said, I guess I didn't learn that. I said, sit down. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he didn't know anything about Polish. Uh, in America, and I think in Canada too, what does it mean to be Irish? You're Nothing. just a, a Canadian. And, and yeah, I know, too, it's the same for me, actually. My my great-grandparents are, are Russian and Ukrainian, and I only learned a couple of little phrases, um, but they always wanted to integrate, right? So, right. right. You didn't want it. You probably didn't want to speak Russian. I would love to now. Now you <laughs> but... You probably didn't want to. Then you want to be Canadian. Um, so the most ethnic groups, over time... Um, disappear into the larger society. Um, now, it's different if, if, you know, where race is involved, where the people are a recognizably different color. But the uh, in America, the white ethnic groups have all disappeared. The, the Irish, the Italians are gone. Um, yet everybody, everybody, I think three quarters of the people in the United States claim to be Irish, which can't possibly be true. Um, so the Jews are different, I and mean, the Jews, I mean, many have assimilated and disappeared into this, but many have maintained their separateness, um, and this is true wherever Jews have lived. They, they tend to maintain a degree of separation, which is enforced by religious and cultural institutions um, that try to remind Jews that they're, that they're a little different. There's something about them. Um, 
And most of the time that's okay, but every once in a while in, in one or another society, uh, being a little bit different isn't good um, because um, usually it's economic collapse, war, um, some crisis will lead uh, people to look for outsiders who might be responsible for the crisis they're encountering. And the Jews are not only outsiders, they're very visible outsiders. Jews tend to be successful. Uh, you know, the rich Jew, that's a stereotype, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, the truth of the matter is that given an opportunity, Jews do tend to do well um, in business and science. Um, and people argue about why that is. I mean, there's certain uh, cultural values that Jews have that maybe the Chinese also have, but some people don't. At any rate, sooner or later, uh, everywhere, uh, sometimes it's after a couple hundred years, sometimes after a thousand years. I mean, in Germany, the Jews lived in Germany for 800 years uh, before Nazism. So sooner or later, their difference keeps the makes the Jews targets. Um, so uh, I don't know if we've reached the end of times for the Jews in America. I don't think so. But it's um, it's certainly the case that during American history, there have been a couple of other periods when Jews have uh, come under attack during the late 19th century. And I, you know, I talk about this in the book, during the late 19th century, uh, and then again during the Great Depression. Um, during the Great Depression, there was enormous anti-Semitism in the United States. And um, some of it, as is the case now, some of it was motivated by uh, foreign governments. You know, the Nazi Germany uh, worked to promote anti-Semitism in the U.S. And, um, you know, the Jews found themselves, uh, you know, victims of uh, persecution. Uh, they were, I mean, every Jewish family can tell you its story. Uh, people couldn't get jobs. No one would rent to them. Um, they were, um, I mean, my, I remember my father-in-law, who was, who was um, a professor, has always had a copy of a letter he received from the University of Virginia, which had offered him a job. And then the department chairman sent him an apologetic letter saying, I'm sorry, uh, we didn't know you were a Jew. And the dean said, we already have one Jew in the university, and that's enough. Um, so that, you know, Jews accepted that, um, but fought against it and, um, eventually prevailed. So this isn't anything new in the, you know, for the United States or any other place. Jews accept that as the price of being different. Um, some Jews are willing to accept it. Some aren't. They become Episcopalians. Um, and, uh, some want to prove that they can persecute Jews even better than the others can. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. the, uh, the Jewish voice for peace people and so forth. Yeah, I can totally see that. I can, I can see it and you can kind of understand it. You know, if you come from that frame of mind where you don't want to be different anymore, you just want to be able to live your life without 
that kind of feeling that you're different, I could see how that could be kind of projected outwards and inwards and, and convoluted and, and made into all of these things that we see now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, um, you know, most Jews are Jews and they, they're willing to, they're, they don't want to convert. They, they're willing to, to bear the risks. Yeah. Now, um, you know, America, Canada, it's, it's so easy. These are such welcoming societies in a way. It's so easy to become a Protestant. Uh, in fact, the mainstream Protestant churches are, shall we say, underattended. They welcome new congregants. Easy okay. enough. So um, what about, okay, if we want to define now, thinking about basically what you're just describing here, we can get some hints at, again, coming to these definitions. You know, what does it mean to be Jewish? But what does it mean to be anti-Semitic? And maybe later we can talk about you know, the differences that people seem to think about being anti-Zionistic. And, and, and you said this before, you spoke about it a little bit before, but like, how do you concisely define being anti-Semitic? Well, concisely is hard um, because very often the things that, um, that anti-Semites hate, uh, they're, you know, projections of, of themselves. They, um, it's hard to uh, ascribe this to um, to Jews in particular, hmm. but I think if if I had to boil it down to one thing, it is a kind of resentment. Um, Jews, given opportunity, Jews tend to do well, and um, those who do less well always resent it. And some of those who do less well are are uh, poor people. And some are Jews who, some are people who compete with Jews for power and position at the highest levels. Um, I was noticing that, you know, battles over control of Harvard and Penn uh, were fought to some extent between wealthy Jews and wealthy Protestants. Interesting. Uh, and, um, you know, in, in American history, Jews and liberal Protestants have been allies since the 1930s. Um, why were they allies? Because they were the only two groups in America that opposed Germany. Hmm. Most Americans during the 30s, either strongly or at least modestly, supported the Reich. Think about it. Irish Americans didn't, you know, hated the British. Italian-Americans and German-Americans supported the Axis. Um, Scandinavian-Americans claimed to be neutralists, but traditionally supported <laughs> Germany. So it doesn't leave too many people. Um, right. Poles, I guess, but they, they weren't politically very important at that time. So um, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant elite, of whom President Roosevelt was a member in good standing, supported Britain. Um, with which uh, those folks had ties based on family, on uh, heritage, on religion, and commercial commercial uh, relationships. Um, and the Jews uh, fear Germany. So the Roosevelt administration worked to bring about an alliance 
between the Jews and uh, and the liberal Protestants. And this this was a wartime alliance that was very effective. These two groups uh, were brought together in organizations like the Century Club and others that uh, promoted um, support for England, that um, sought to discredit discredit the German-American Bund and the America Firsters, and they were very effective. Um, they worked through the news media and through film. Um, you know, the uh, uh, Hollywood film studios, which were initially reluctant to criticize Germany, once the administration prodded them, cranked out all sorts of anti-German films in which often wasp, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant stars attacked the Germans and the producers were Jews. So it was, uh, you know, in a way, the cinematic alliance that, um, that helped to win the war. Um, and that, that alliance between Jews and liberal Protestants continued during the 1950s when both came under attack by anti-communist crusaders. Um, you had McCarthy attacking the liberal Protestants. McCarthy spoke for of Midwestern nationalist industries. And you had the uh, House Un-American Activities Committee attacking the Jews. So the Jews and, and the liberal Protestants united and defeated their foes. And then back the civil rights movement, which marched right into the hinterland of their enemies. So that was all fine and dandy, but there was always always uh, some struggle within that alliance. Uh, who should really be in charge? Mm -hmm. and, um, some uh, major liberal Protestant foundations to this day support anti-Zionist causes, comes out of, out of the little clashes that, that took place. So um, my larger point is that um, Jews are are not only resented by, uh, you know, poor people who don't like the rich, but also other wealthy people who think the Jews are, what's the word they use? Pushy. You know, mm. the, the Jews um, want more than their fair share. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I suggest that people think about the, the battles that occurred at Harvard and Penn, um, where the sort of Jewish corporate raiders uh, faced off against the very waspy board members. And and this are are you talking about what happened with Claudine Gay? Yes. Uh, okay. Okay. So can can you explain like what's your take on that whole thing? Well, Claudine Gay was um, appointed to advance a. Uh, an agenda of diversity, equity, inclusion, um, and did so. Uh, and that in and of itself wouldn't have caused trouble on the campus. But along came uh, the issue of Palestine and these horrible uh, anti-Semitic demonstrations on the Harvard campus. Uh, I know they were pro-Palestine, anti-Zion, but they were anti-Semitic demonstrations Jewish students were targeted, um, and the Harvard administration wouldn't act. 
Now, I think, you know, many, many viewers and listeners um, probably aren't familiar with the internal politics of American universities these days. Mm. But American university administrators are terrified of offending the campus left because there is no campus right. Yes. And, um, the, faculty, the faculty is liberal. Um, yeah. Now, in defense of the faculty, I will say that I have looked, at, looked very carefully at this, that liberal professors adhere to the ancient and honorable code of, preventing, of presenting diverse views in the classroom. If you look to see what books they assign, and there is a, like for everything else in the universe, there's a website where you can look this up. <laughs> and, and that website shows that most professors assign a variety of different readings, not only readings on the left, but also middle of the road, right-wing readings. Uh, in my own field, political science, the number one, the number one person assigned is Samuel Huntington, who is a conservative, the late Samuel Huntington, who is a conservative. He's way ahead of Karl Marx, I'll tell you. Um, but um, at any rate, the faculty continues to, you know, harbor these antediluvian views supporting intellectual freedom. Can you believe that? Who would support such a thing? But the administration at most schools does not. Um, administrators are not drawn from the top ranks of the faculty. Generally speaking, and I talk about this in my, I'll plug my one of my other books, uh, The Fall of the Faculty, hmm. um, where I show that administrators tend to be people who couldn't make it on the faculty. Um, not all. I mean, I, I, I have to say the president of Hopkins is very nice. I like him. <laughs> Be careful, he's, Ben. <laughs> and he's Canadian, by the way. Really? Yeah, I've always told him that that's one of his faults, but all right. <laughs> he's too nice. Um, but, but at any rate, if I had, if I had to stop insulting administrators, I'd have nothing left to say. Um, but at any rate, the administrators are drawn from the from the bottom rungs, and uh, many have no idea what academic values mean. They'd have to read them and still wouldn't understand them. Uh, they understand, you know, real politique, which is who do I have to support to stay in charge, mm -hmm. and what do I have to say in order that the corporate research firms that control. Um, the job market in academia will come to me for the next job. And you do that um, by not getting into fights with the left. The campus left is unforgiving and it's unopposed. There's no campus right. Um, I have to say that as far as I know, at Johns Hopkins University, I'm the only uh, known Republican in the College of Arts and Sciences out of, I think, 450 faculty. If there are any others, they're keeping very quiet. Um, well, this doesn't surprise me. I recall uh, Phil Magnus recently, he posted a, a graph, right, which shows that I think from the year 2000 onwards, that's where you really saw a dip in uh, conservative representation among faculty. That's I guess, I don't know if it was among administration as well. 
<laughs> but yeah. but anyway, right, the the faculty is liberal, but is at, is has a a principle of academic freedom that they haven't lost yet. However, the administrators are not. Their their principle is, um, you know, where do we go for lunch and when am I going to get a better job? Um, so for them, confrontations with the right with the left are just off the table, and this has become habitual. I mean, they don't even have to think about it. They reflexively shy away from saying anything bad about anybody on the campus left, however outrageous they are. Do they want to shut down speakers? Well, that's free speech, except speakers on the left. Who, you know. mm-hmm. but, um, mm-hmm. So um, I wasn't surprised, uh, number one, at how poorly these, these three presidents handle themselves. They were like the three stooges, right? Mm-hmm. And to me, they reflected the character of, of the selection process in higher education. They were not the best and brightest. I mean, they, yeah. they were so stiff, so unable to think. Uh, they were really being thrown softballs. Do you, do you think it's bad to run around calling for death to the Jews? Well, that's an easy one. How about say, yes, I think that's wrong. No, don't don't. What are you going to say? Well, I have it depends. I have to study our speech code. Um, and but second, what you saw there was um, the fact that they reflexively shy away from criticizing anything on the left, no matter what, no matter how outrageous. Um, they they have to defend it, accept it, and in America claim that it's protected by the Constitution. I'm not sure how. Uh, and, you know, in Congress, they had to remind them that um, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act requires them to protect uh, people who are under attack on the basis of race, religion, what have you. I don't know. Maybe they didn't read Title VI. Maybe they could only read the first two or three titles. Um, right. And, and their their lawyers, who are very expensive, should have pointed to Title VI. But anyway, that that's what you saw there. You saw the contemporary university administration, which is craven and cowardly um, and not able to think its way out of a wet paper bag um, and unable to to say anything bad about anybody on the left, no matter what they do. And I think also to add to that, Ben, it's possible that these are the political views that they themselves maybe hold. Um, So that could be maybe part of it. You know, this um, anti-Israel, anti-Semitism, all of these things that have become, that have found their home in the academic left. Maybe, but um, I think most administrators are, I won't say above politics, I'll say they're below politics. They haven't thought mm. that far. Right. Uh, they're dull bureaucrats for the most part. Mm. Uh, you know, think of the most boring Canadian bureaucratic office and the most boring clerk there you got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we have a lot of that in Canada. We we're, we have a massive bureaucracy. So okay. I could totally see that. People who don't, they think, oh, we don't think about politics. You know, we just go about our lives. Yeah, if they're, look at, uh, I mean, Hannah Arendt uh, wrote her famous book on Eichmann mm-hmm. and talked about the banality of evil. Now, she was wrong about Eichmann. Eichmann wasn't banal at all. He was evil. But she she did capture a bureaucratic type. Um, they're 
they're put to ask about their political views is kind of irrelevant. They're not driven by their political views. They're driven uh, by their place in the bureaucracy. And as someone once told me, how many direct reports I have. You familiar with that with that phraseology? Your your position in the world, in the bureaucratic world, is determined by how many people report to you. Uh, I see. I see. That that's about as far as I think. Yeah, and I actually I've read that book Eichmann in Jerusalem, and I do recall that when they were questioning Eichmann, he was saying, "Oh, this period when you know I had ordered the murder of X amount of Jews, I was thinking about my next step up in the ladder." Like he wasn't, he could only remember his life in terms of not how many people he ordered to to be killed. Yeah. But in in where he was at in his career, well, yeah, there, there, was, I mean, there was something to her insight. Um, but I, I think that um, people who have looked more carefully at Eichmann say he was fooling her. Um, oh yeah, and and if he was sociopathic as well, right? He would have reported probably well to all the psychologists and everybody who interviewed him. He was a sociopath, mm-hmm. um, but there, but you know, he does. Her her depiction of him does capture a social type. Um, it's a bureaucrat, the dull bureaucratic functionary who does their routines and just avoids controversy. Um, so uh, that's what you got at the university. And um, I I saw that um, that chart you referred to. Uh, I think it was it was based on the Harvard faculty, if I remember correctly. Or, yeah, we faculty consists of liberals, um, but again, the faculty, the liberal faculty I know, um, people, people have not lost the traditional perspective, which is that you present all points of view. I mean, mm. I do. Uh, mm-hmm. I lots of foolish points of view on the left, but it's I'm sorry, I don't. Like I don't present them as that, um, but um, it's the it, the problem is the administration. Um, you know, I I um, if we had time, I would talk more about what's wrong with the educational system because I've been I've been writing about this, and um, you know, we joked earlier about woke kindergarten, but that's permeated the entire American and I think educa- Canadian. Uh, educational process Uh, in elementary school, middle school, high school, they no longer teach facts. That's so boring. They teach critical thinking. Um, And you know what? If if you teach facts, that interferes with critical thinking. You can think Think more critically if you don't know anything. But don't they teach, don't they teach, don't they not teach critical thinking? Don't they teach critical theory? They, I don't know what, they teach some (laughs) mission. (laughs) <laughs> what they teach as critical theory would not be recognized by the founders of critical theory. The the Frankfurt mm. would be shocked and, and horrified. Interesting. Uh, they uh, they teach what they teach is let's sit around and talk to one another. Uh, I'm always shocked by what college students don't know. Uh, yesterday in class, the topic of the Industrial Revolution came up. Now, aren't they supposed to know what that is? I believe so. You didn't have an idea what this was. <laughs> so I, I thought, oh my God, you know, guys don't know anything. Uh, 
or when we were talking about the Middle East, I said, now, what do you think is the origin of all these countries? Where, where do they come from? They, they didn't know what my question meant. Well, they thought all of these countries had been there since time immemorial. Yes. And I said, well, no, they were all provinces of the Ottoman Empire. And when the British carved it up, uh, they created a lot of these countries. So I knew right away that I had made a mistake. They didn't know what the Ottoman Empire was. <laughs> uh, well, this is a shame, right? School, which only accepts 5% of its applicants. So what can I tell you? Yeah, no, it's such a shame. And that's why I think it's so important to just read. You know, I mean, this is one of the things that I've always loved to do and I continue to do. I'm always reading a book. You know, if I have a question about something, I'll go read a book because I don't think that people are taught these things in school anymore. Um, you know, as you said, they're they're taught to sit in a circle basically and do kumbaya and then learn that there's, you know, 72 genders. Uh, well, I think I think you've just you've just labeled it correctly. What they it's what they call critical thinking is could be called kumbaya thinking. Yes. Um, <laughs> We all need to learn from one another and we don't have any values and we don't have any facts. We just kind of muddle through. But, and that's just outrageous. And it's dangerous too, right? Because it leaves a vacuum. It actually leaves a vacuum to be filled with any kinds of, you know, political ideas, you know, with the destruction of our Western system. And and do you, you talk about in your book, I'm reading here from the Independence page, which describes your book, um, you know, the high and horrible costs of anti-Semitism. But that, I think, can also be paired with, you know, losing the values and traditions of the West. Do you have any, well, any thoughts on that? I think that's absolutely right. And as I said before, um, you know, a lot of the railing against um, Israel is projecting onto Israel what they hate about America. Um, mm -hmm. They, settler colonialism, well, you know, they're thinking about America and certainly about Canada. Um, mm -hmm. Now, if you go back in time, every square inch on the face of the earth used to belong to somebody else. Yes. So we're all settler colonialists, but they don't. They don't want to go that far back. Um, so um, they're not calling for the destruction of Israel. A lot, a lot of them are calling for the destruction of the United States of America. They're talking about the destruction of Canada, um, the destruction of the West, because everything they say about Israel is an indictment of the West. Um, yes. And some understand it and some don't. Uh, some Polish students uh, believe that there's some some place somewhere where we we all get along with one another, um, and we all love one another, and no one has to work. Um, and you know, we'll, it's a utopia. We'll, yeah, somewhere out there, there's a utopia. But as you know, most utopias didn't end well. Yes. Um, and I I was. Um, for something I'm writing, I was doing a little research on immigration and, you know, Americans, Canadians, we're all afraid of immigration. And it seems that at least for Latin, Latin immigrants to the United States, they love America and they hated where they were before. They say we came to America because of how terrible it was where we were before. And we believe America is a great country. 
and they continue to believe that. However, their children and grandchildren who are subjected to American education uh, turn out to be the ones who, who turn un-American, just like their friends. And yes. our educational system is producing this. And, you know, someone said Israel was the canary in the mine shaft. It's true. Um, the attack on Israel is an attack on the West, an attack on the United States. Uh, I mean, who is more guilty of racism, imperialism, and capitalism? Uh, I once asked students what capitalism was. Uh, they didn't really know, but they knew it was bad. But yes. people it was bad, but they didn't know what the heck it was. Uh, yes. Maybe it's because they were political science students. Maybe the economics students knew more. I don't know. Maybe, maybe if if you're lucky at John Hopkins. But you know, I think of something that I read recently in um, Rene Girard book. I forget which one it was. Uh, one of his one of his last ones, and he talks about how there's something interesting about Western self hatred, in that it's uniquely Western. He says there's there's nobody else who does this. You know, every every other kind of country or group or you know nation state that are outside of the West tend to think that they're kind of the best, and it's only in the West that you see that there's this self-hatred. And in fact, that's the other side of the coin of supremacy. You know, it's like you've come on the other side of that. We're so great that we're terrible. Yeah, it's it's apologizing for success. You know, it's hmm. we're successful, but we like you folks too. Um, and, you know, in the U.S. currently, again, I the, the um, people who attack Israel really want to attack America. Yeah. And they're they're a little bit more afraid to do that. It's safer for them to rail against Israel. Uh, you know, particularly the uh the students who are here, the people who are here on student visas from the Middle East, mm-hmm. they think it's probably safer to attack Zionism than to declare that they hate America. Maybe the Americans would wake up and send them home. I don't know. Maybe not. Yeah, no, I, I definitely see that. I see that in Canada. I see that in Britain as well. We see it all over. Um, And so you talk in your book, your book is titled The Left, the Right and the Jews, the New American Anti-Semitism. So since I haven't read it, when you're referring to the right, are you referring to the to the right as being representative of a new form of anti-Semitism? Or are you talking about the right as being able to uh, to fuse together, as you were explaining before, with the as the Protestants did in the past. Yeah, well, this is an interesting, and this is a very good question, and it's one that I raise at the end of the book, but don't don't quite um, don't quite answer. This is, remains to be seen. Hmm. But you know, in Europe, we see these people call them green-brown coalitions, where neo-Nazis. Um, and left liberals find common ground, um, that being the Jews. Um, we haven't seen this in the U.S., though some neo-Nazis um, admire in their, you know, if you read neo-Nazi websites, they admire, in particular, some of the anti-Zionist Jews. Um, you know, David Duke kind of likes Norman Finkelstein. You know, they, they share some views. Um, 
so that that's the question I raise. Is there a, a green-brown future in America as well? And I talk about the conditions under which that might be. Hmm. And people will have to read the book to find out. Yes, but, myself uh, included. <laughs> but uh, but I don't say I answer the question, but but it's you a question. It. To be because part. because I see now there are some people, I guess, I don't know if you call them the new right. I don't really like to use the term far right because, I mean, it's, it's used as such a slur. Kind of like anti-Semitism has been used as a slur in the past just to silence sure. any critics who criticize government restrictions on COVID or anything like that. But I think that there is a certain faction of people who have become so opposed to government whatsoever, uh, so anti-establishment, I see this all over the place, that they now have decided that they are using the same talking points as the far left and, and they're you know decrying settler colonialism. And I'm thinking you guys are speaking like Marxists. You're talking like anti-American or anti-imperialists. Uh, I don't think they realize that they resemble the Marxists, but there's one quote that I want to bring up or to paraphrase Hayek. He said in The Road to Serfdom, and I understand it now, I think, of every socialist, you will see they will become, they will start to resemble a fascist and that the the far left and the far right, you know, the the leaders of these parties are competing for the same type of mind. And it's only the liberal of the old type, the classical liberal, that, that you can't convince. Yeah, this, uh, you know, Hayek was very smart and... Um... You know, if you looked at uh, the rise of European fascism, in many ways it resembled communism, um, and certainly a lot of the um, appeal to, was to the same classes. Uh, you know, the Nazis called called themselves national socialists. Mm -hmm. um, the difference is in the leadership. Um, fascist movements, when they're successful tend to be led by intellectuals and and um, members of of the business elite oh. uh, and they they turn them away from an effort to um, to overthrow capitalism um, whereas communist parties have a have a different different cadre of leadership but in terms of the people to whom they appeal in terms of their methods, they they have a lot in common, um, and you know that that's a question that needs to be asked about um, America, Canada, Western Europe. Is there a is there a possible green brown uh, coalition here, and uh, what does that mean for everybody? Um, so uh, I hope people will read the book. I mean I. I um I think it's really I personally think it's really interesting. <laughs> um, um, it's it's not exactly a book about the Jews. It's a book about the United States, about Canada, about the West. Um, because the attack on the Jews that we're seeing, these mobs running around, um, attacking the Jews, they're attacking the West. They're attacking America, Canada, uh. And I mean, I'm at the risk of advertising this woman's web website, 
look at the woke kindergarten website and you'll see what I mean. Uh, you know, we hate the Zionists. We hate America. Uh, you know, she has managed in her, in her bumbling way to attack Western culture and to say, that's what I want to teach my kindergarten kids. Ben, this has been an amazing discussion. I hope that we can do this again. I really appreciate oh, having fun. you on. Yeah. Uh, and maybe we'll talk about talk more about citizenship and what that means. Um, that's always been different in Canada than America. And I yes. think it's, it's, uh, it's going to be a very important, it's starting to be a very important issue for us. I think we can definitely do that. Um, before we go, are there any last thoughts? I'll just leave people again. They can go on independent.org right now. I'll link it in the description and they can pre-order your book, The New American Anti-Semitism: The Left, the Right and the Jews. Um, any last thoughts before we go? Uh, no, I think this has been, this has been um, interesting for me. So uh, you ask really good questions. So I, I am happy to have the opportunity to articulate um, some of the important issues that, that are being raised now. Thank you very much, Ben. And maybe that will inspire us some more writing on your part, which I look forward to. And um, I hope to have you on here again soon. Would be delighted. Thanks.